Welcome to Prescription for Justice. My name is Martin Donahue, and I'm your host. This is episode number 22 today, and all the other episodes can be viewed on YouTube under Prescription for Justice or in podcast form on KBU Radio. You can also visit the Public Health and Social Justice website where you'll find numerous open access PowerPoint slideshows, articles, syllabi for course teaching, and over a thousand links to organizations involved in a number of issues. Today's episode is entitled, Donald Trump is Mentally Unfit to be President. In today's program, we are joined by an internationally renowned psychiatrist and author to discuss Donald Trump's mental fitness to be president. We have discussed Trump's background, ecocidal policies, racism, warmongering, contempt for norms of Western democracy and international law, narcissism, and sociopathic traits on prior episodes of this program, notably episode eight entitled Complicit. Today, we are fortunate to have as a guest Dr. Bandy Lee, editor of the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Dr. Lee is a forensic psychiatrist and an internationally recognized expert on violence and a member of the faculty of Yale School of Medicine's Law and Psychiatry Division. She served as director of research for the Center for the Study of Violence and co-founded Yale's Violence and Health Study Group and leads a project group for the World Health Organization's Violence Prevention Alliance. She has consulted with the governments of Ireland and France, as well as four U.S. states on violence prevention programming in prisons and in the community. She played a key role in initiating reforms at Rikers Island, New York City's correctional facility known for extreme levels of violence. She has served as consultant to the World Health Organization Violence and Injury Prevention Department, UNESCO, and other United Nations bodies, and as a speaker to the World Economic Forum. She co-founded and directs the World Mental Health Coalition, which assembles mental health experts to exchange with other disciplines on how they can collaboratively protect societal mental health. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us. And I must thank say to our viewers, that is the trimmed down uh, bio. Uh, uh, Dr. Lee uh, and I were just commenting on how I can't imagine how she ever sleeps with all that she does, and she's very passionate and, as I said, well-known for her work. So we'll delve right into things. Um, Bandy, tell us about the origins of the book that you edited, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. It's uh, First of all, let me say my views are my own, although I do represent the World Mental Health Coalition as its president. Uh, well, the book came about because we were discussing among ourselves, um, uh, us mental health professionals, and discovered very quickly we had a consensus, a medical consensus that the president, Donald Trump, in the office of the presidency posed a danger to the nation and the international community because of the powers of his office. And we were trying to figure out what to do. Um, it turned out that many of us were afraid to speak up, not so much for reasons of ethics, although uh, we were concerned about that also, uh, but rather because we thought that our licenses would be in danger because of a litigious president who would uh, come after those who would speak up against him or his, or our physical safety because of uh, violence prone because of the violence proneness of his supporters. And so I decided to try to break the ice through a conference and we called it um, 
does professional responsibility include a duty to warn? So a duty to warn when uh, a, a public figure poses a threat to society. And uh, unfortunately, it had very sparse attendance, despite having prime auditorium space at Yale School of Medicine with some of the most renowned speakers in psychiatry. And uh, so at first, I thought it was a, a total flop. And then hundreds and hundreds of mental health professionals later got in touch with me once they heard about the conference. And uh, not only within this country, but from around the world. And that's how the World Mental Health Coalition came to be formed. And the proceedings of the conference formed the book, which includes just 27 mental health experts because of the limitations of the book size. And later on, it was expanded to 37, but now there are thousands of mental health professionals who have joined us. And it's really an un unprecedented event that so many uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals would come forth like this. And I want to come back in a little bit to the ethical issues involved here in speaking out and what various professional organizations' policies have been. But first, can you lay out for our viewers the specific reasons, character traits, et cetera, why you and your colleagues believe that Trump is unfit to be president? Initially, we wanted to move the discussion away from mental illness because mental illness in itself does not make an individual dangerous. In fact, those suffering from mental illness are often less, uh, are less violent as a whole than the general population. And often quite and accomplished, poets, artists, etc. Exactly, yes, mm -hmm. yes, and it doesn't make one unfit to perform one's duties. There are many uh, individuals with severe mental illnesses who still, you know, seek the help they need and still are able to perform perfectly at work. So mm -hmm. that alone, and including presidents, uh, there was a Duke University study that showed that uh, almost half of U.S. presidents have suffered from some kind of mental illness, and yet they have been some of the best leaders. Right. Lincoln uh, with depression, for instance. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, for example, has been said to uh, have had more compassion for people because of the depression mm -hmm. he suffered. Mm -hmm. and, and in that manner, many uh, individuals overcome the hardships of mental illness and make it a strength even mm -hmm. than, than uh, 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 a cause for concern, but here uh, we were concerned about the president's dangerousness as well as potential unfitness. And as a violence expert, I could speak about the dangerousness, his verbal aggression, his uh, history of sexual assaults um, and boasting about them, his incitement to violence at his rallies, his endorsement of violence and key speeches, his taunting of uh, hostile nations and nuclear powers, and all of these were signs of danger that I was very concerned about. He also showed signs and symptoms that would uh, that are associated with dangerousness, including impulsivity, recklessness, um, proneness to paranoid ideations, uh, a lack of empathy. Um, and uh, a constant need to buttress one's sense of self uh, in a way that uh, seemed to direct uh, uh, placing one's own 
emotional needs above the needs of the nation that could uh, predispose one to violence. And also some problems with basic information processing and ability yes. to comprehend the truth and to transmit the truth. Um, certainly his, his presidency has been very chaotic and mm -hmm. we're filming this on the day following two more mass shootings in this country. Yes. And uh, his response has been typical of previous responses and I think we'll see that played out over the following days of attacking uh, anyone who throws the remotest criticism that perhaps his words about undocumented immigrants, about the marchers in Charlottesville with good people on both sides, uh, taunting crowds to assault people, um, uh, send her back, all of those comments that he's made, uh, he'll double down, yes, exactly. those, I'm afraid. The severe emotional needs that prevent him from accepting reality as it is, or t to take in basic information and facts, and to to accept reality as you know all of us uh, learn to do in in our own maturation stages. He has never been able to uh, do that, or has shown signs of being able to do that, and so he would attack those who would challenge his sense of reality. And we've seen this play out before in history, um, this sort of demagoguery and totalitarianism, and it, it doesn't end well. Um, yes, do you, yes. Do you want to make some historical comparisons? Well, um, there is an author in our book, in the second edition, who speaks speci specifically to this issue, and he, uh, he cites um, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, um, and, and multiple historical examples, and uh, it's, it's understandable from the standpoint where there's, there's one 1% of the population that has, carries dangerous personality traits, and then uh, they disproportionately seek power for, to fulfill their own pathological needs, not that they wish to lead or contribute in any way that, that most leaders would do, but they end up uh, attaining power uh, because of their intense drive. And so this 1% in the population ends up occupying 10% of leadership positions. Mm. And, and as you have stated, it never ends well. They tend to uh, in, they're responsible for the vast majority of tr atrocities in world history, and they end up uh, pretty much grinding their countries down to the ground and, and destroying what, uh, what civilizations that they have had. Right, and I am afraid that, that uh, his presidency will take us decades to recover from. Uh, and uh, one hopefully um, whoever is elected next, and hopefully that will be in 2020, will at least begin to get us back on some sort of international footing vis-a-vis -vis the respect that we hold, at least for our democratic ideals. Granted, we don't always carry them out, but at least reform some of our alliances uh, and be taken seriously, because I think it's at the point where for many of our allies in the rest of the world, they're incredibly nervous. Um, alliances yes. are faltering. This is a time of great danger with many countries possessing nuclear weapons, with some countries like us and Russia 
and China and elsewhere having those on hair trigger alert where they can literally be launched and reach their targets within 30 to 45 minutes. And uh, to have someone as petulant in charge of the country and in charge of pushing those buttons is very dangerous. Uh, in fact, there is a bill before Congress right now, um, House 669, sponsored by Representative Ted Lieu of California, and that prohibits, uh, would prohibit the president from using the armed forces to conduct a first-use nuclear strike unless that was conducted pursuant to a congressional declaration of war expressly authorizing such a strike. And yes. uh, I, uh, that is obviously going to be held up when it reaches the Senate because unfortunately many in the Senate are uh, complicit and, and for whatever reason um, are supporting Trump and kind of all into the bitter end. Now, I want to make a distinction here. I think you're saying specifically that you're not making a specific psychiatric diagnosis, correct? That's what correct. you are doing is you are recognizing, given your expertise, a series of traits that, given the responsibilities of the office, make Trump unfit to hold that office, correct? Yes, and uh, we're, we're actually alerting about the signs of concern so that uh, a formal evaluation could be mm -hmm. conducted. Um, a full diagnostic neuropsychiatric evaluation would be ideal, but since we haven't been able to, to do that, what we have done is actually um, when the Mueller report came out, it gave us the kind, the, exactly the kinds of information in high quality and in abundance, what we would um, seek to do a functional exam. In other words, does the president have the mental capacity to carry out the duties of his office? And, um, and will he not pose a danger to himself or others in the process of carrying out his duties? And uh, so we, were, we actually had enough information to make that assessment. And certainly so, Bob Woodward's book, uh, I'm sure, added fuel to the fire, his book, Fear. Uh, he's a respected journalist yes. who interviewed many people who are in the Trump's inner circle. I'll mention yes. there is another House bill uh, that would actually establish an oversight uh, commission on the president's capacity, consisting of leaders of the House and Senate and various cabinet positions, as well as some appointed uh, officials, including a medical professional. Um, again, that's not gone anywhere, but that's something that to think about. Now, um, there is some precedent for psychiatrists' duty to warn. Uh, that would be the Tarasov rule, uh, the Goldwater rule. Maybe you could just briefly tell us what each of those are, since our mm -hmm. viewers might not be familiar with those, and how what you have done um, has created a little bit of controversy vis-a-vis -vis some misunderstandings of what the Goldwater rule really means. So if you could start with Tarasov, Goldwater, and then proceed yes. with that, that would be great. A little controversy would be an understatement. <laughs> it, it really has become a feud within uh, the psychiatric field. Um, but it started because my whole engagement in this uh, affair has has started with ethical deliberations because when when the day the morning after Donald Trump's election I was bombarded with phone calls and emails and messages uh, from members of the public because I was a violence expert and whether or not uh, to speak up in this way uh, when I have no experience of doing so and no recent memory of psychiatrists being involved in this way I had to 
think anew whether or not it would be ethical. And my conclusion was that the entire uh, field of professional ethics uh, pointed toward um, speaking up because when, uh, when there's a patient, for example, um, we have confidentiality rules and those are considered to be sacrosanct. Um, but in the event of danger to others or the public, we have a duty to warn. Uh, we have a, uh, we're mandated reporters as well as have a duty to warn and a duty to protect in, in cases of danger um, when we have information about danger, however the, da uh, the information is obtained. So when the American Psychiatric Association... Well, that, hold just a second. That came up in the Tarasoff ruling then. So the Tarasoff ruling was that a psychiatrist had information, and correct me if I'm wrong here, about uh, someone who had threatened the life of a specific person. Well, actually, and, I'm, I'm speaking more generally. Okay. The Tarasoff might fall under the more general guidelines mm -hmm. to warn, to uh, even breach the, the sacred rules of confidentiality within medicine, within psychiatry, when there is danger. A specific threat, so, correct, correct. Yes. And we do that in internal medicine, for instance, with yes. mandated yes. reportable diseases and contract tra contact tracing for things like exactly. measles exactly. and even HIV in some cases, and certainly anthrax uh, and brucellosis and other uh, infectious diseases that could be used in biowarfare. So, yes, yes. Uh, it's very much the same principle. Mm -hmm. So I have been a staunch supporter of the Goldwater Rule for 20 years, even though I'm a forensic psychiatrist and in forensic cases we are exempt because we often testify uh, about uh, public figures and minor public figures. But, um, but I believed in the Goldwater Rule because that is a standard I wish to bring to, uh, to public figures. But what alarmed me was when the American Psychiatric Association, two months into this presidency, two months after Donald Trump's inauguration, changed the Goldwater Rule to mean not just um, preventing diagnosis. So, so the original Goldwater Rule says this, Psychiatrists have a responsibility to patients as well as to society, and we should participate in activities that contribute, that uh, improve the community and better public health. Uh, and when we're asked about a public figure, we should educate the public in general terms, but just don't diagnose. That is what the Goldwater Rule says. Mm -hmm. But uh, the American Psychiatric Association came out and reinterpreted the Goldwater Rule to mean not just diagnosis, but anything you can say about any objective aspect, any observable aspect of a public figure, you could not utter unless you had performed a personal examination and gotten consent to, uh, to state it. And so basically we were gagged. And it specified that we were not to speak even in the event of a national emergency. And that is what really alerted me to the problems of this situation, because that not only goes against our First Amendment rights, it goes against the very reason for which, uh, for which you know, the First Amendment exists, mm -hmm. that, um, that if we were to see problems of leadership, and, and in my mind, um, a, 
a dangerous regime, uh, a potential tyrannical regime, would first wish to silence the experts mm -hmm. and intellectuals, mm -hmm. as well as the press, because these are the checks against abuses of power and uh, potential dangerous uh, consequences. And when we have the training of psychology and psychiatry, which would indicate to us dangerous personalities that would not only uh, lead, mislead the public to, to a down a dangerous path, but also be able to manipulate the public into endorsing uh, them into, um, into believing uh, mm -hmm. what they were not. In other words, uh, manipulate, deceive, and... and um, create, and an, create an artificial truth, which, which is much more easy today in the era of deep fakes and artificially yes. created videos and so on that we really need to watch out for. Uh, so the Goldwater rule uh, was changed. You made your comments. Uh, I know you've had some, some problems with the American Psychiatric Association's policies in the past, uh, specifically with pharmaceutical industry influence Psychiatric Association, yes. I, I was a member, I was a fellow in the mm -hmm. past, but I resigned approximately a dozen years ago because their pharmaceutical industry ties became uh, too heavy. And in fact, they were accepting 30% of their funding from pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And their policies reflected this. In the, in the beginning stages, when I first joined, they were, uh, uh, they were great advocates of patients and patient rights. Now they were advocating for pharmacotherapy and chemical therapy uh, above patient interest. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now with the Goldwater Rule, the way that they have changed it in this era, um, we were told that uh, actually one of the leaders of the American Psychiatric Association confessed that they did so, they made the changes, created gag rule to protect their federal funding. Hmm. And, and so that is very frightening uh, on many levels. And I think, think we see that playing out in a number of our government agencies, um, the EPA, the Department of the Interior, uh, Fish and Wildlife, uh, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that's how demagogues and totalitarians do their work. I, I admire exactly. you. Exactly, that's what was on my mind. Right. That whether they were threatened or whether they saw this as some kind of way to obtain favor and to their advantage, um, either way it was placing, uh, protecting power. Mm -hmm. above threatening scientists, society. hiding information, um, and uh, heading us back to what Carl Sagan and others have called the demon-haunted world. Uh, I, I think you also make a, a good point about the ethical drive that compelled you because um, various codes of medical ethics actually state that it's not just a physician's duty to care for her, his or her individual patient, but to care for society as a whole. And when we recognize yes. dangers confronting society, be it a mentally unfit or unstable president or uh, pollutants leaking into the water supply or an outbreak of uh, a disease uh, that's traced back to uh, a 
problems with a restaurant, say, not uh, having their cooks wash their hands, you know, you, from, the, from the less serious to the extremely serious being nuclear war, uh, we do have an obligation to speak out. Now, the, the other case I was talking about, just for our viewers, was with the American Psychological Association then, um, and they have subsequently changed their policy, but they previously had a policy that was in support of two psychologists who were working with the CIA, making up to $1,800 a day, and then starting a company that made $81 million through torture itself. And so uh, I think, I think it's one of the ways to wrap our heads around this uh, is that their medical organizations are not always good, and they don't always represent all doctors. And there are bad doctors out there, too. But and we have to be a check on our own professional associations. Exactly. We uh, concede our, our independent thinking and n not act as, as our own uh, moral agents, then, then associations are bound to abuse their, uh, their power, as we saw. I mean, the American Psychological Association did very much what the psychiatric what their psychiatric counterpart did. Under governmental pressure, they changed ethical guidelines so that these uh, military psychologists could carry out torture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, it's dark times for science and it's, it's dangerous times for the world. Uh, unfortunately, this has been such a fascinating discussion that we only have about uh, 45 seconds here um, oh, for you to say, right? Uh, and time flies for you to say what our viewers can do, other than, of course, buy your book, which my aunt and, and my cousin, interestingly, I found out on the way over here are fighting over. <laughs> they won copies. Other than, of course, buying the book, uh, and we've put some websites on the, the screen at the bottom that they can go to to get more information. What do you suggest that the average, average Joe and Jane does? Well, all that we do, the book and the... Uh, report on the Mueller report, which shows uh, with hard data that the president uh, does not have basic mental capacity to carry out his functions of office. Um, we are offering this information to help empower the public, because eventually it is really um, in the hands of the public to determine its destiny, and I believe the public has more power than it realizes that even politicians cannot act unless they have endorsement from the public. And so uh, so I think there's a lot that can be done, and we're doing our part. We're hoping to uh, basically allow the public to do it. Well, I want to thank you for doing that, and I want to thank you for your courage. I want to thank you for helping to educate us. And, and I'll, I guess I'll answer my own question, is that since we are still a democracy, the way to fix this, at the very least, vote. Uh, we know in the United States that the poor vote less than the rich. Uh, that uh, those with less education vote less often than those with more. Blacks vote less than whites. Latinos vote less than Caucasians. Um, and it's important that all of us, it's imperative that all of us go out to the polls, not just to vote for the office of president, but to vote for someone who will hopefully restore us to the ideals that at least on paper uh, are supposed to represent this country and that are at serious risk now. Dr. Lee, thank you for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we hope maybe we'll hear some more from you in the future, uh, but hopefully when things have gotten a little bit better. This has been Prescription for much. Justice. Thank you. My name is Martin Donahoe. Please join us on our next episode.